The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. If you have your Bibles with you, you can turn uh, to Matthew chapter 6 as we continue uh, to look at the Sermon on the Mount, in particular the section on prayer that Christ has been teaching us, as it were, in these chapters of 5, 6, and 7, preaching this sermon as the first, as it were, sermon within the new kingdom. The king had arrived, he had entered in, he had withstood the temptation of the evil one to try to get him uh, to give away, as it were, uh, his kingdom to negotiate with the king or the prince of this present age. Rejecting that and rebuking that, it says that he now went into all of the land of Judea and of Jerusalem and of Israel, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the king. And in that preaching, he was saying, this is what the upside-down kingdom looks like. The upside-down kingdom says that the blessed person is meek. Blessed is the spiritually hungry. Blessed are those who suffer for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, for you will be satisfied. Uh, that he preached about who we are uh, in his kingdom, that we are his sons and daughters, that we are transformed by his work in our lives. And with that, we live those transformed lives out in the open. It's no longer, as genera- some generations previously have said, that religion is a private matter, that Christianity is a private matter. Jesus wouldn't understand that conversation. Or he said, no, you're to live your life as a light, as a city set upon a hill, that others would be drawn to it and would see it and would be able to come out of the darkness into the glorious light of relationship with the true king, that you're to be salt within the world, to give taste to the world, to take away the hollowness and the emptiness of the world by showing in your life the tastiness, as it were, the savory, beautiful sweetness of relationship with God, and at some level to retard, as it were, the advance of evil within the world, that where the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. That there is a sense in which because of the presence of the citizens of the kingdom of God in the world, there's blessing and rejoicing shalom that comes to the world. And the disciples came to him and said, we, we love this concept. This is great. We, we want all of these things. We don't even know how to talk within the kingdom to the king. We don't even know how to approach God in prayer. And so in chapter 6, he begins to teach them on prayer. And that's where we have been, and that's where we will remain for the next few weeks of teaching, of hearing Jesus' teaching on prayer. So if you have your Bibles, look with me to Matthew chapter 6, beginning In verse 5, this is the very word of the Lord. And when you pray, you must not be like hypocrites, like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who sees in secret, or who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows 
that you, what you need, before you ask him, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. May he add his blessing to the reading and to the hearing of it. So Jesus has been teaching us how to pray, but more than that, as is typical of Jesus, his words are are so pregnant, they are so full that he's teaching us more than just how to pray, he's teaching us how to live. Because the structure of the prayer is a very simple structure. It begins with God at the center. It begins by saying, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The whole first section, the three petitions entering in, begin by speaking of God as central to the understanding, central to the focus of the believer in conversation with God. And then... It goes on to say, now give us our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive those uh, who are indebted to us. And so it moves. And so he's saying, hey, this is not just a pattern of prayer, but this is the pattern of your life. For the life of a citizen of the kingdom, the life of a follower of Jesus Christ, has God centralized. It has him first. And then it has our needs. It's as if Jesus was saying, folks, I care about your daily bread, but not nearly as much as I care about my Father's kingdom and his reputation and his name and rule in the world. And if that's what I'm concerned about more than anything else, it should be what you're concerned about too. For the simple fact of the matter is God will give you his daily bread if he sees fit, for there are plenty of our brothers and sisters in the world who are suffering from malnutrition and starvation. But their prayer is, Thy will be done, your name be hallowed, your kingdom come, you be seen as glorious even through the midst of my starvation. They don't necessarily flip it around, for the understanding of the believer is God first in the midst of all of those things. You see, the Lord's Prayer is an incredibly logical prayer as well. He builds one thing upon another. He says the entrance to prayer is through the intimacy with God as Father, but it moves quickly to this Father, as intimate and loving and personal as he is, is still the king of the universe, and his name is to be hallowed. It is, carries great weight, and we never take it lightly. Hallowed be thy name. And then when his name is hallowed, we look and go, but it's not being hallowed uh, around the world. Why not? That's because there's another kingdom and there's a lot of people who are citizens of a different kingdom who hallow the name of that king and not the name of the true king. And so we pray, your kingdom come. Father, we pray that your kingdom would come. Send Christ back. Send the king back. Uh, that he would establish it in its fullness. But until then, would it be established in my life? And we said last week, the most important question uh, that you can ask right now is has his kingdom come to you? Has his kingdom taken up residency in you? Has his throne been established in your life? And that you have abdicated your throne. And that you said my life is no longer my own. It is yours. It has been purchased with a high price. 
And I now no longer live for myself, but the life that I live, I live unto you and to your glory and to your name and for your kingdom's sake. And it would make sense then, right out of that, that if we live with it in kingdom, with a God who is on the throne and rules and reigns, that we would then pray, your will be done. Because in a kingdom with a sovereign, whose will is the most important will? It's the will of the sovereign. It's the will of the king. And living in a democracy, we don't like that. We rail against that. We don't like being even ruled in a democracy. But in his kingdom, we say, your will be done. And he tags it at the end on earth as it is in heaven. And that's not just for his will, but that really is said for all of the first three petitions. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's saying, would you bring the heavenly, the divine, the cosmic, would you bring it down and bring it to bear here in our lives? So it switches and it brings about this sense for us of God is central in our prayers and in our lives. You may not go to your daily bread. You may not start asking about your specific needs until we have brought all that it all to a climax and able to say, God, I submit to you right now to your lordship in everything in my life. I submit to you, to your kingdom, to your name, to your will. And in that submission, I come humbly asking daily bread, forgiveness. First things have to come first. You see, this is how Jesus looks at everything. And this is how Jesus begins in applying this now third uh, petition. Your will be done. So when we come and we pray your will be done, for many of us, what we've been praying over the years uh, is, God, how do I get your will to be exactly like my will? God, how do I get you to answer my prayer in the manner in which I've determined to pray it? What we're really praying isn't, God, your will be done, your transcendent will come and take sovereign rule over my will, but we are saying, God, I'd love to sit down at the table and barter with you. I'd love to let you see how I think my will is better than your will and is better for me than your will. But what God is coming and saying to us is that the point of prayer is never and not at all to get God to give us what we want. And if we think that is the main point of prayer, then no, matter, no wonder we get so little out of prayer. The irony of prayer is this. Tim Keller wrote, prayer is very effective For those people who don't come into it hoping that it will necessarily be a way that you get God to give you things. Prayer is very effective for those who understand that prayer isn't about getting God to give us things. The third petition is about us bringing our wills under God's will and saying, I trust yours above my own. And so we're going to look at three things briefly this morning on this third petition, your will be done. We're going to remember, we're going to submit, and we're going to engage. We're going to consider remembering, we're going to consider submitting, and then engaging with. So remember. What do we need to remember as we pray this, your will be done? Well, what I would encourage you to do is to slow down in your prayer life. 
And consider for a moment the pronoun that you just used, your, thy, if you still have the, new, uh, the King James, your will be done. Who is the your? Consider for a moment, remember who you're praying to, remember the object of your prayer, that it is God who is our heavenly Father. God, I'm coming to you, our Heavenly Father. God, I'm coming to you and I recognize your fatherliness, the beauty of who you are as a father. As I've read your word, I see that you're a God who loves to give gifts to his children. You're a God who is approachable and accessible. You are a God uh, who comes and, and as the younger brother ran to his father, you ran to him. And you embraced him and you kissed him and you covered his nakedness. You gave him the signet ring and you threw a banquet for him because you're the kind of father who loves for children who have wandered off to come back home. You're the kind of God who blesses us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places through your son, Jesus Christ. You are that kind of father. And so we have to make that very difficult but very important shift that says we do not understand our heavenly father through our earthly father. We understand our earthly fathers through our heavenly father. So many of you have been shipwrecked and thrown off because you are trying to view God through the prism of your earthly father. And some of us have great earthly fathers, but they still aren't a great prism to see God. And some of you have had horrible earthly fathers who abused you and wounded you and left you. And so it's almost impossible for you to see God as Father. I'm asking you to set your earthly father aside for a moment and go straight to the source. And then understand what an earthly father is supposed to look like. Not vice versa. So we remember who we're talking to, that he's our father. And he loves us passionately. But he's also a father who is a king. And who is hallowed and powerful. And that's actually incredibly good news, isn't it? It's great to be able to go to a father and go, Father, you are my dad. I have access to you. And that father go, and guess what I have access to? Everything. I'm all powerful. I'm all knowing. I know what you're going to pray before you pray it. I know the end from the beginning. I am everywhere. I never sleep nor slumber. I never forget you. I never have you out of my sight because I am the glorious king of all things. And Haggai says, I am the Lord of hosts. I am the Lord of the mighty armies of heaven. And they are there in, and I am in your midst. I am the God of peace, shalom. I am the God who provides. I am your banner that covers you. I am uh, your El Shaddai. I am God. I am that I am, and I am for you and not against you. And I will release all of the power of heaven on your behalf. As you live for my glory and my name's sake. So when we come to God, it's great to know that we have access to him. But it's also great to know that he's a powerful king and a God who brings those two beautiful things together. Not in tension, but in incredible, glorious contrast of the same person that we come to. So we remember who he is. That's what Paul says in his prayers. Listen to these prayers, and I'm going to spend a few minutes reading them because it's so important to listen to how Paul prays for us, the church, and how Jesus, we're not going to read it, but John 17, I'd encourage you to read later. Listen, and what is absolutely remarkable in these four prayers is what is present, but also what is not present. He prays in Philippians, and in Colossians, and twice in Ephesians. Philippians 1 
And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Colossians 1. And so from that, the day that we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Ephesians 1, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, that what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the work of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things into the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And Ephesians 3, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Did you notice what was missing in that? Any prayer for the relief of troubles? for healing, for overcoming problems, and for happiness. Paul said your biggest problem are not the circumstances in which you find yourself. Your biggest problem and your greatest need is that you need to know more of the beauty and the transcendent power of the God whom you serve and have been called by to be his sons and daughters. Parents, it's incredibly important that, yes, when your children are young, start praying for their spouses. It is so much more important that you would pray these prayers for your children. That they would come to know the beauty and the magnificence of who God is. That God would be greater than anything else in their lives. If you're married, the prayer that you should have for your spouse isn't that they would be a better spouse and they would quit doing the certain things that bug you. I'm sure that's in your marriage, not in mine. But that you should pray for your spouse regularly, that your spouse would come to a deeper and more glorious understanding of the beauty and the nature of the God whom they serve. Children, that you pray for your parents in that way. Friends, that you pray for one another in that way. That is what we pray. Therefore, we become obsessed 
You see, when we don't pray that way, when we don't think that way, we become obsessed with changing the conditions that we perceive uh, around us that determine our happiness and determine our well-being. You see, that's not true, though. Those circumstances don't control us. You see, Paul and Jesus said this, your real problem is a lack of enjoying God, a lack of love for God, a lack for understanding God. The real problem comes from an internal condition, not an external condition. How often do we pray that God would change the external condition? Most of our prayers. And what Paul and Jesus are teaching is this, no change the internal, the transformation of the heart, the internal, then allows you to, we'll see in just a second, to deal with the other things. The thing that we need more than anything else when we consider the will of our Heavenly Father is to know how deeply and intimately and richly He loves us and how we've been blessed in Him. Reminds me of the story of a man who lived in the Middle East and he had a little small plot of sand And it was just a nice little plot of sand, but then some geologists came and they realized that under his little plot of sand was one of the largest uh, riches of resources of oil. And they said, we're going to give you $150 million for your little plot of dirt. And in one year, we're going to come back. We're giving you a year to get your things in order. And when we come back, you need to be vacated from this place. And they gave him a check for $150 million. They came back in a year and he was still sitting in his tent. And they said, what are you doing in your tent? And as they were asking the question, they looked over his shoulder and saw the check for $150 million framed and hanging on the side of his tent. He didn't know what he'd been given. And you go, yeah, Bill, that's not a true story. It's not. Uh, It's a parable. (laughs) It's to illustrate a point. Like the little six-year-old girl who has her Barbie doll. And she's playing with her Barbie doll and the arm breaks and the dress tears. And she is so distraught because her Barbie doll has broken apart. And granddaddy comes in and he says, sweetie, it's okay. Granddaddy is so rich. I've given you a trust fund of $25 million. It's going to be okay. But my Barbie doll's broken. The arm's not on it. You're not going to be able to convince the six-year-old that $25 million is more important than the Barbie doll. And so often in our lives, we act like the six-year-old. We look at the external circumstances and say, things aren't going as I determined that they should go. And we forget that we have a God who has said, I've given you more than $150 million. I've given you more than a trust fund. I've given you heaven and earth. And I've given you the opportunity now to be my sons and daughters, to come in and to reign and rule with me forever. Trust me, it's never about the Barbie doll. It's not about the oil. But we are so fixated on these things. It's not having that financial thing work out or the relationship thing work out. It's that you don't realize your condition. You don't realize who you are and what you have in Jesus. And it's a shifting, as it were, and a remembering of who God is. And when we make that shift and we recognize who God is and we spend an inordinate amount of time remembering that and praying that and asking him to remind us of those things, then we can come into these next two quick steps. The one is accepting the will of that good father, that God, that glorious king, that we accept the will of our heavenly father. Think about where Jesus prayed, your will be done. He prayed that on the night before his crucifixion. 
when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, that he was experiencing, as it were, a trauma and an experience that no other human will ever experience. He was drinking a cup as he said, Father, take this cup from me, because he knew that that cup was the cup of the Old Testament, the wrath of God, that he was going to drink in all of its fullness, that he was going to take the punishment of all of those who had been given to him out of the world. He said, Father, I didn't come for the whole world. I came for those whom you've given me out of the world, and I am going to drink the wrath that is determined for them. I'm going to drink it on their behalf. And as he began to realize what he was stepping into, he began to bleed blood, or he began to sweat blood because he was getting a foretaste of the fact that he was going to experience the very white-hot wrath of God, his father. His father was going to do what no father should ever do, turn his face away. And Jesus, recognizing that, looked at his father and he said, Father, can you take this cup from me? As any reasonable person would do. Father, would you heal this cancer in my body? Father, would you restore my marriage? Father, uh, this child that's growing within me, uh, would you bring this child to full life and give it a healthy life? Father, would you do these things? But then Jesus went, but not my will, but yours be done. Jesus knew God so intimately, his father so intimately, that he was willing to come and to drink that cup. And to say, Father, I'm willing to drink that cup because here's what I know about me drinking that cup. It will bring immeasurable goodness to many. You will use it for redemption. You will use it for your glory. You will use it for good within the world. And so therefore, Father, I willingly submit my will to yours. I take my will and I lay it down. I take life's glory and put it into dust. The great hymn by Matheson. I consider my glory dead and I give it to you that you would make blossoms bloom from that. And you're going, I'm not Jesus, Bill. I'm not the second person of the Trinity. That's an easy illustration for him. He was God and man, but he was still God. How can I how can you expect me to do that? Well, here's what I would say uh, to your rebuttal, and I appreciate your rebuttal in that, is you were never designed, and I was never designed to drink that cup, but we were designed to drink other cups, smaller cups. And so let me introduce you to a friend. Her name is Johnny Erickson Tata. I had the opportunity to meet Johnny in the 1970s when I was a little boy. She's been a friend of my family's at some level for many years. Not the kind of friend we have dinner with, but we know her. And my parents knew her well. Johnny Erickson Tata, if you don't know her, was a beautiful teenage girl who went swimming with some friends. And she dove into the lake one afternoon. And as she went through the surface of the water, her head slammed against a rock right under the surface of the water. And she was paralyzed from her neck down for the remainder of her life. She was drinking a cup. She was having to accept the will of God that was beyond her control and not her design. And listen to how this teenage girl over the years of coming into a deeper, more fruitful relationship with her heavenly father, of knowing him more deeply and intimately, listen to her words. He has chosen not to heal me, but to hold me. The more intense the pain, the closer his embrace. Suffering provides the gym equipment on which my faith can be exercised. 
I often wished that God were not like he, I often wish God were like he used to be, a few notches lower. I wanted him to be lofty enough to help me, but not so uncontrollable. I longed for his warm presence, times when he seemed more safe. My wheelchair was the key to seeing everything happen, especially since God's power always shows up best in weakness. So glad, I, so here I sit, glad that I have not been healed on the outside, but glad that I have been healed on the inside, healed from my own self centered wants and wishes. We're not Jesus Christ, and we're not going to be in the Garden of Gethsemane to ever drink that cup. But for many of you, you relate, and for almost all of us, we relate at some level to Johnny Erickson Tata, that we drink those smaller cups. And as we drink those smaller cups, the only way to be able to digest it and to allow it not to poison our souls, but to refresh our souls, is to know that God will bring something glorious and beautiful out of it. That somehow his name will be hallowed in all of the world. Somehow this is a part of his kingdom come. And I'd recognize that my desire for recognition, my desire for money, my desire for popularity, my desire for all the things that seem to be pulling me out from, that be, to be being pulled out from under me, God, I'm looking at them and I say to all of them, Your will be done. Your will be done. That whatever cup you may be drinking, for some of you, you're drinking a powerful cup. A cup of of being alone in your latter years as your beloved has gone on to be with the Lord. For some of you, a cup of having to be a single parent. For some of you, a cup of stage four cancer. For others, a cup of barrenness and no children. For others, a cup, as it were, of no marriage in the future, whatever the cup is. And folks, children drink cups too. Little cups. Like you didn't get picked for the team. You didn't get a date for the prom. You didn't get those things. We all drink cups. But the beauty in the midst of drinking those cups is that we see that God uses and we trust that He can use those things for His glory. That it's never about us. And that we ask those two questions that we say around here uh, all the time. That when you're going through something, when you find yourself sipping on that cup, ask these two questions and I promise it will begin to revolutionize how you approach things. God, what do you want me to learn about you through this sip? And what do you want me to learn about me through this sip? What do you want me to learn about you through this situation? And what do you want me to learn about me in this situation? If you'll pause, you'll learn an awful lot. Some of you are going, I just want to get through the silly cup, McCutcheon. I just want to make it through drinking it. Folks, it will be of no benefit to you to just make it through. It will only be a benefit to you if you make it through and learn something. That it begins to shape you and form you and transcend uh, and to do this work within you. You see, in Johnny Erickson Tata's case, what happened was that her heart became much deeper, much more sensitive, much more loving, much more wise than it ever would have been had it not been touched through that fall. That was her case, so the question would be, what's your case? Every one of us has these cups to drink. 
In the midst of that, should we ask why? And I'll simply say this. My encouragement would be no. Scripture doesn't say don't ask why per se, but I would say no. One writer put it this way. If you just told me, God, why this was happening and I understood, then I'd be more readily willing and able to submit. But don't you see that if you knew why, it wouldn't be submission anymore. It wouldn't be obedience anymore. Do you know that if he told you why, then he'd say, oh, now I see. And you'd move on and you'd stay in control of your life. Then you'd stay your own little king. Sometimes God simply says, I'm not going to tell you why. And when you get to heaven, by the way, let me go ahead and take this away from you. When you get to heaven, don't think that you get to come up to God and go, now, you owe me an explanation for why. Folks, can I encourage you this morning to lay down the why? To lay it down. Quit spending so much time and energy on finding that answer. And pour yourself back into knowing who this beautiful, incredible God is. And in developing that deep and profound trust in Him. Of accepting His will. And then the final thing briefly. Is that when we actively engage His will. It's not that accepting His will is passive per se. It takes a lot of energy to accept His will, doesn't it? It takes a lot of prayer. It takes a lot of, uh, of wrestling, as it were, with God to accept His will. Uh, but when engaging His will... That, what I mean that is, in this is simply when you pray, your will be done, you are saying, Lord, your will be done in me. Father, I want to know your will, your active will, the will that is described in here, and I want to live every day according to your will. Regularly, people ask me, Bill, what's the will of God in my life? What's the will of God in my life? God makes it very clear. His will in our life is to love Him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. It's not complex, and it's not hidden. Oh, but Will, what should I do? What's His will uh, as I view poverty uh, in the world, and injustice in the world, and think about people who maybe are marginalized and don't have a voice within our culture? What does God want me to do about that? He's told you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. A humble person walks into poverty recognizing that there's no essential difference. A person who loves justice comes and speaks on the behalf of those who have no voice and against injustice within the world. Bill, I didn't vote for this president. I don't like this president. I don't like anything to do with him, and I don't like anything to do with the people who voted for him in his presidency. I don't like my boss and I don't like my teachers. What does God want me to do? How am I supposed his will for me in this? I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. That is good. This is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So Bill, what are you trying to say? What's the will of God? I need to know the difference between his perfect will and his permissive will. You ready for that? There's no difference. God has one will. 
His will for humanity is that we bring Him glory in every area of our life, that we submit ourselves to Him, that we come and we seek diligently within His Word, His law, and His rules. And Jesus says, if you love me, guess what you'll do? You'll obey me. You want to know what His rule is? You want to know what His will is for you? Uh, this afternoon when you go to the beach, don't get junk. Men, quit staring at the women who walk by. You want to know His will? When you drive to the beach, drive the speed limit. Honor the law of the state. Do those things. When you go out to lunch, what's His will for lunch? Give thanks to Him for all of your daily bread. What's His will? It's right here. Now what it doesn't say in His will is this. I looked a long time for Lisa Cleary's name in the Bible. I bumped into her at church. I thought she was beautiful. I thought, this is great. I'd like to marry this girl. And so I thought, I need to find out if it's God's will. So I studied 66 books. You know it's not in 66 books of the Bible? Lisa Clary. Lisa Burns Clary is not there. Nowhere to be found. But what I did find was this. Here are the traits and the qualifications and the characteristics of a godly woman that you should marry, Bill. And if she doesn't meet these qualifications and standards, then you need to walk away. But she's pretty. She'll make me happy. If she doesn't meet these qualifications and standards, Bill, walk away. His will was very clear. And the good thing for me, she met him. And she was beautiful. And she was silly enough to say yes. We go seeking for God's will in the clouds and in the tea leaves and all of this. God's will isn't that difficult to discern, friends. Live in a way that brings honor and glory to Him. If you're married, honor your spouse. If you're a parent, love your children. If you make money, be generous with your money. If you study, do it with integrity. If you play sports, do it to the glory of God. Everything that we do, He gives us that roadmap. Obedience matters. So in conclusion, expand your view of God. Expand your view of who He is. Remember who He is. Understand that He is good and that we are able to accept His will in our lives, even though we may not understand it when we drink those little cups along the way. And actively pursue day by day His will to be done in your life and in mine. Let's pray.